Doug South Studios in Oxford, Mississippi. We're mass communicating. It's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off for them. This is the End of the Line Podcast, powered by DougSouth.com. I give it a, uh, a 10. A 10. Sweep the leg. You have a problem with that. And now, here your host, Rocky LaFleur. Everybody on? Good. Great. Grand. Wonderful. No yelling in the butt. Josh Webb. Sorry I had a fight in the middle of your butt. I'm party. And Jake LaTontis. I am bad news. Also starring Rob Crew. I bet this guy's into the woods a hundred bucks. And Bradley Ramsey. Bill Martin inside. Showtime. Alright, here we go. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. Showtime, everybody! Showtime! Welcome to the End of the Line podcast. I'm Rocky LaFleur in the Duckside Studios in Oxford. Beautiful Oxford, Mississippi. Joining me today, the Heffinator. My best friends in the world, Rob Hefflin. How are you? Good man, how you been doing? Good. I, your your sunflowers and your duck food have got to be doing pretty doggone good with the rain that we've been getting the past few days. Well, I think somebody ain't praying right in Isola, Mississippi, because uh, I don't think I've gotten any of that rain. And I had a buddy go look at my sunflowers the other day, and he said they're still just sitting in the ground. Waiting on moisture, so I think when I planted the moisture I had, probably left the earth. And uh, my corn and my soybeans are are up, though. I'm gonna try to fertilize my corn, see if I can get a rain on it. You, you know, you, you posted some pictures last week, I guess. It, it was maybe you were going back to Louisiana. I don't know if you were going or coming, but. Some pictures that got a lot of reaction on Facebook. Those were pictures you took from the air of the South Delta. Yeah. You know, outside of people from Mississippi, I don't think that people understand how much water and what's covered in the South Delta right now. Uh, That area from Vicksburg, gosh, up to Rolling Fork, across to... Uh, I guess probably uh, what's that south of Belgium? All the way to Louise, and then up into Humphreys County, uh, up to Highway 12, and some places in Humphreys County. But yeah, my little brother lives in Gulf Shores. You know, he grew up in Belzona, and he didn't even know about it. He was talking about all the flooding in Iowa and everything. I said, man, you realize it's 551,000 acres underwater in the Delta right now? He said, where? And I said, from like Louise over to Anguilla, across to Myersville, and all the way to Vicksburg. And he didn't have any idea. There's, there's nothing about it on the media. I mean, the Delta's a little small drop in the, the United States farming community, but it's uh, pretty devastating for that half a million acres. Got to be sad for you because that is a large amount of acreage as a game warden that you worked. I mean, I, I saw pictures from I guess it, it's the the park over there where a lot of people camp when they hunt. Oh gosh, what's the name of the the park over there where everybody camps when they hunt the national forest? That thing has been on. It's had water on it since. Geez, uh, back in December. That yeah, a lot of that low low area back in there has been flooded. I guess December or January, and some of the higher ground has been flooded since about February. There's still a little high ground out down down Silver Creek that goes down to Holly Bluff. That's high ground. Deer Creek that goes down through Rolling Fork down to Cary. That's high ground. Uh, there, just about everything else is underwater. Because it's like Huge. a big bathtub with a stopper in it, and you can't pull the stopper out until the river drops lower, lower than the drain on the bathtub. 
Uh, That's right. And the pumps, you know, the pumps, from everything I understand, all this was approved in 1973 after the big flood of 73. Yeah, yeah, we're going to dig these canals. We're going to straighten out the river channel. You know, there's big straight ditches that are called the Sunflower River now. And the old Sunflower River runs around through Delta National Forest all crooked and curvy. And you know, they made this big, long ditch so the water would drain faster. Well, all that water from Clarksdale all the way south, you know, Washington County, Cahoma County, Bolivar County, a lot of equipment County, just everything south, all that water that doesn't go into the Yazoo River goes into the Sunflower River. It all drains down there to Sharky and Isquina County. Well, they made all these big ditches to get that water off everybody faster. And they put big gates in, but they never put pumps in when they shut the gates and you turn the pumps on. There's pumps everywhere in New Orleans. We fly people on our air tours down there over the big pump on the, uh, they close the gates on the intercoastal waterway and all the canals coming out of Harvey and Gretna and Mattery, I think Mattery and, and, and Bell Chase and all that area <laughs> flow down. They shut the gates. They've got 11 5,000 horsepower motors in a building down there. 55,000 horsepower worth of pumps to pump that water out. And, you know, that's a big uh, populated area with a lot of houses. It's all below sea level, but that's the same kind of system they approved for the south delta of the Yazoo backwater back in 1973. And it would pump the water down to 87 feet, I think. And at 87 feet, you got a lot of Delta National Forest that's underwater. Some of the roads are 90 feet in Delta National, but the road that goes to Mahana Wildlife Management Area, I think, is at 77 feet. So it would be 10 feet underwater at 87 feet, and that's as low as the pumps are supposed to pump it out. But then you got people writing in letters saying if we had the pumps, it would be destroying and draining wetlands, and you know, people that don't understand. They think we're, we're draining this ecosystem bone dry so you plant another acre of soybeans. It won't be bone dry at 87 feet. It'll be stuff that's 10 feet underwater, way down there by Valley Park. And Wow. But, man, it's just it's a... What's the break-even number? What's the break-even number when they sh open and close the gates, Rob? Uh, well, it just depends on what the river is. If the river is yeah, that's what a bit I'm... higher... That's what I mean. I, I don't know. I don't know what that. Uh, the river right now is like a foot or two higher than the the water on the the land side, so they got to let it get almost even before they can open it, and the water or gravity flow out. So it's been closed almost continuously since February. It's been open for a week or two at a time here and there. It looks like it's crested now and it's starting to go down. But those folks that farm down there, I mean, you can't. They're not going to be able to plant beans in middle of July and make a crop, uh, you know, end of July, 1st of August. And that's the only thing left you can plant down in, in this part of the country that late in the year. You know, they haven't been a turkey hatch in, what, two or three years, that area? That that area was huge for turkeys. Good turkey. Yeah, the National Forest, uh, when I was working with the Department of Wildlife, they closed the season on Delta National Forest. See, last year I wasn't with them. But they closed it, I think, the year before or the year before that. So the last three out of four years, if I'm not mistaken, Delta National Forest has been flooded during turkey season. So that's always a high ridge or two out. But for the most part, the lower end of Delta National Forest has been flooded the last three of the four turkey seasons, so it doesn't take long for uh, not have a lot of turkeys around when that happens. Man, the deer. I, I don't know how the deer have survived. That, if, it, listen, for these, for you guys that are, that are listening to this that are not from Mississippi, don't understand a lot about Mississippi, that is the heart of big deer country. It is our Pike County, per se. 
of deer hunting that area that that kind of footprint down in the south delta where the yazoo and the sunflower river hit right there in vicksburg and the, the land in that delta what we call the south delta but the the deer hunting man you see pictures and videos of, of hundreds and thousands of deer standing on you know deer deers i, I sure sound like i'm from mississippi deers but deer, deer. standing on the levee and they got to be running out of food. You know, you made a comment about the deer and the, the health issues that's going to happen with the with the deer through that through the time period we're to now, but it, also in the future, it's going to be devastating to the deer. Yeah, it. I can remember when I started hunting when I was twelve. So that's been about nineteen eighty-five. First place I hunted was a Reed Deer Camp down there at Fittler, and. It has always been, we call it the zoo. It's always been a bunch of deer down there. But you talk to people that, you know, like our dad's age, that group, and they say, man, I remember when you saw a deer track, you called everybody you knew, not on your cell phone, but you, you went to town and told everybody you knew you saw a deer track. Everybody wanted to ride out there and see it. So we have come from that point back in the, probably the 50s, to, I remember when I started hunting in 1985, we had deer around, but up around Humphreys County, we don't really even wear the deer hunt. It was all fields and fish ponds. And now we've got a lot of CRP, WRP, and it's more deer than I can ever remember right now. So and we had a healthy population. I'm not a deer biologist, so I'm not trying to throw out my professional opinion. But And deer are used to floods. In 2011, when it flooded, uh, didn't flood in the backwater area because we didn't get any rain that year. So it was bone dry in that 550,000 acres that's flooded right now. But on the Wolf Lake side, where there is no levee to keep the Yazoo River from backing out, those deer left places I hunted, and then the water went down. You know, the water went down like two weeks later or whatever it was. It didn't stay for four, five, six months. It went down. Yeah. Actually, and the deer deer were right back in there having farms, so they're used to floods. But when it's flooded for four or five or six months, where do they go? Not every deer can can go to the hills or go somewhere. And you see all those agricultural fields. I've seen videos on Facebook, people riding through the fields that they planted, and it's just hundreds of deer standing out there. They're mowing everything down that they can get right now. It's a sad situation. What I don't, we'll, we'll jump on something else in just a second, but what I don't understand is I saw where Phil Bryant, um, Cindy, uh, Cindy, Hi, the Hotsmith, uh, delivered a hand, uh, a letter to President Trump asking uh, for a federal disaster emergency for that area. Why would it take that long, man? We're, we're into, like you said, we're into, month six or seven now of flooding why why are why did it take that long is what i don't get i asked that same question to a friend of mine the other day and they said they don't think you can declare a disaster until the disaster is over like a tornado comes through tears everything up well you declare a disaster uh, hurricane comes through so this is an ongoing thing so a disaster hasn't been declared because it's not over yet. I don't know if that makes any sense. But I didn't see where she had asked for temporary pumps to be put in place uh, to start pumping this water out. And I think that's a great idea. But I'm kind of like you. I'm thinking maybe the temporary pumps are about three months late. Maybe nobody realizes it's going to last this long. I, mean, I know nobody realizes that. But it, at least maybe they'll start doing something. I think that I read somewhere that the pumps would have taken uh, either 43, 43, 53, or 63. I can't remember, and that's a long range. I mean, that's 20 days in there, but I can't, what it would take to those pumps, if they were in place to pump all the water out of that, gosh, it's just a stopped up bathtub is the best way to explain it. Well, when you're trying to pump down a half a million acres, you're way behind. Uh, starting with about 
five or ten thousand acres or twenty thousand acres and, and trying to keep up with it, I guess is the way it probably should be done. But who knows? Maybe maybe they'll get pumps, but I don't I think the general consensus is if pumps aren't installed after this, they won't ever be installed. You know, you've seen a lot of things that amaze you from the air as a pilot. It, you know, and that being one of them, I'm sure. What, as you look back on your flight career flying for so long, what's one thing that sticks out in your mind that you saw from the air that just made you do a double take? I don't know. I, I went up to Maine last summer and flew for about three months and had a really good time up there. Just a totally different part of the world. Everything is rock up there. I was flying down to, down to, coast one day and I thought, man, that's some gray sand and I realized they don't do sand in Maine. It's all solid rock. <laughs> and uh but you could see places up there where I am told that the glaciers as they retreated or whatever they did, you can just see these big scour lines. Look like you took a serrated knife and kind of scraped it across the land. You can see where all that rock is just gouged out and then I was flying up picked up a, a woman one day off Matinicas Island. It's about 16 miles off the coast. And there's this big white boulder out on the, the beach of this island. And I had seen it, but really didn't think much of it. And she was talking about stuff that the glaciers deposited as they retreated and melted back whenever that happened. And she said, you see that big white boulder? I said, yes. She said, you see, it doesn't match anything else around here. I said, yeah, everything else is kind of like dark gray. She said, that boulder is from Canada. And uh, I said, really? And uh, she said, yeah. And <laughs> one of my buddies, he's from Florida. He was flying up there, too. And I told him, I said, man, check out that big boulder on Matinicus. It came down from Canada on the glacier. And he said, now we're getting boulders from Canada, build the wall. And I just fell out laughing. Uh, but uh, <laughs> can't even stop boulders from coming into the country. <laughs> you know, Rob, you, you got your commercial license, right? And you, you just, are you finishing up your multi right now? No, I finished it uh, a couple months ago. It didn't take but just a few days to do it. Multi is a great. One of the most interesting things, spend a couple of minutes on this real quick. You know, private pilot license is pretty easy to obtain. Um, after that, you, you can get an instrument rating. That is the ability to be able to fly when weather is not permitting for a just a regular private pilot. Wrong or right in saying that. Yeah, you got visual flight rules and instrument flight rules, and uh, there's most there's private pilots. Cloud, cl yeah, cloud heights and and visual distance ranges uh, that you have to abide by to fly under visual flight rules. And when the weather is below those minimums, or if you're carrying passengers for hire over so many miles, fifty nautical miles. Or carrying passengers for hire at night, you have to have an instrument rating. But then, what most people do is get their private and their instrument, then the commercial license, which allows you to fly for hire. All right. So, exactly what Rob said via visual flight rules is it allows you to fly when you could, your visibility is three to five miles. I think anything under three is limited visibility, right? I can't remember. Man, I it's been know. 15 I, I, years. I studied all that, but I forgot it now. But you, anyway, they, so to get your instrument, they put you what what's called under the hood. And you have, all right, so a lot of flying, and you hear fighter pilots talk about this all, all the time, that you come, become part of the plane, you, you, Everything is done on feelings. Well, when you're flying by instrument, you, the feelings go out the window, and it's all based on your instruments on your dash, which, you know, a lot of flying should be based on that anyway. Yeah. But 
uh, man, they they really put you to the test when you're getting your instrument rating. And man, and and I say all that to say this: you go up to Maine last summer. I tell you this: your instrument rating had to really be put to the test, knowing what the weather's like in Maine during the summertime. A lot of a lot of rain, a lot of fog, and that's a different kind of flying, man. It's not flying by the seat of your pants, looking out the window, having a jolly old good time, dude. You're you're looking at instruments, you know, watching the horizon because you could be turned upside down for all you know when you're sitting in the middle of a cloud, right or wrong. Right. Yeah, you uh, your equilibrium and and all that gets thrown off. It's kind of like if you somebody blindfolds you and spins you around three or four times and then tells you to walk towards the door or whatever. You know how you've seen those videos of people tripping and falling over. It's kind of what it feels like. You go into a cloud and it's never smooth. It's rarely ever smooth in a cloud and you're always bumping around. Uh, so you lose visual reference quick and you have to, you have to keep up a scan of your primary instruments, your heading, your altitude. You know, you're make sure you're not turning to the left or right. It's really easy, really easy to get off track. Like, you know, you're driving your truck, you look out the window, then you realize you've run off the road. Well, kind of the same thing airplane. Once you get focused on one thing too long, you don't realize you're turning a little bit or more. And the, the, the hardest thing for me about the instrument rating was I've flown under the hood getting my private commercial license uh, or rating certificate but you have to come into an airport get in their approach pattern we did a lot of practice out of jackson mississippi which is a huge airport but a lot of airlines coming in and out of there and military planes coming in and uh you have to get in a pattern with them go out so far to a to a waypoint turn come in you're descending you're maintaining that head and at the same time, you're talking to Tower because there's a lot of distractions. It's very high workload, and it took me a, it took a long time. You have to have 40 hours of of, uh, of instrument training to get your instrument rating, but uh, <laughs> that's the minimum. But it was it was the hardest one I've ever had to do. But it was it was fun because it was so difficult. But once you finally figured it out. You could, could come in and do an approach, and you're under a hood. You've been flying for the last 30 minutes. All you're seeing is your instrument panel. And then when your instructor says, okay, take your hood off or pick your hood up and look, and you're, you know, you're a half a mile or three-quarters of a mile from the end of the runway, and you're about 300 feet off the ground, you're looking right at the numbers. That's a really good feeling. But it goes away quick. If you, if you don't practice it, it goes away quick, kind of like Spanish in high school. You know, you used to say all kind of stuff in Spanish, but now maybe you can't because you hadn't used it. So the same way with the training. That had to get, but, but like I said, it had to get put to the test when you were in Maine last year, a lot. We did all VFR, but it was a lot of, it was a lot of, uh, it was one mile visibility in clear clouds when you're in uncontrolled airspace. So... We were going across the, the bay and all that kind of stuff, you know, 15 miles. A lot of times the GPS was showing you where you're supposed to be going, but the, the horizon and the clouds and all that blends together. So it was it was VFR stuff, but it wasn't a uh, pretty blue sky. Let's go ride around an airplane. You were flying under a cloud layer and... and uh, a lot of wind out there. I didn't stay for the winter time. They tell me I chickened out and came back home, but the wind really blows in the winter time up there. They get those nor'easters, uh, but I liked it up there. It's a beautiful place. Some good people. And somebody said, "Man, I don't know how you survived Maine with all those liberals." I'm telling you, the people where I was in Maine, not the tourists, but the the folks that live there. Are just good old boys. They had jacked up trucks, NRA, uh, I glass packs, mud grips, you know. And I was like, these are just good old boys, a long way from home. And I really enjoyed it up there. Maine is a very 
conservative state. A lot of it is. I, I agree with you. A lot of people because I used to have a guy that that hunted with me from Maine. He was in the House or the Senate in in Maine, but great, great guy. And we used, he would talk about tell me about Maine because I, I you know I being in the Northeast, I thought it was a probably like all the rest of them, Connecticut and Massachusetts, New York, but. Uh, Maine is a very conservative and rural state. A lot of, yeah, not very many big towns in Maine. You know, and I was like, Coast, uh, but the Northwoods part of Maine, you see Northwoods Law TV show, that is a beautiful part of the country. Up there, clear lakes, mountains, moose, it's a, it's a neat part of the world to go see. And I would love to go up there and go see duck hunting because I can see those big eiders in the, in the uh, spring off the coast up there. I guess they were diving for clams or something. I would love to go back up there and hunt some sea ducks. We got time for, for one story. I want, to, I, want to tell, I want you to tell this story real quick. Go back into the Hefnator story. You know, there's a lot of times that you came to my lodge, uh, sat on the front porch, or uh, we just talked about life and talked about the things you know you didn't say just a whole lot unless it was something extreme that that happened with being a game warden you know we we it's kind of a, a relation we were we were better friends than we were because i was a outfitter you were a game warden we didn't we talked about more friend stuff but it was one story that you told me that I, I'll never forget, and it scared the crap out of me. You were checking licenses on one of the Oxbow Lakes over on Mississippi River, right? You know the story I'm about to ask you about? Uh, I think I may know which way you're going. It is uh, It's one that proves the point to me, and for everybody that's sitting there listening to this podcast, that these guys are underpaid for the risk of their health, their life, that they put them there in, you know, put themselves in danger um, and deal with dangerous people every day as a game warden. And it kind of freaked you out a little bit. You, you got to admit that. I guess you're talking about the time the guy tried to drown me. Yep. Yeah. <clears throat> that guy's not on earth anymore, so I don't want to disrespect a man. He's he's even with the house now. We were on Lake Ferguson one summer. And Lake Ferguson's a pretty uh, big party lake. lake. Yeah, it's, it is beautiful, but it's a it's kind of known to be a party lake, and it's an old oxbow of the Mississippi River. The Arkansas state line runs runs down almost down the middle of the lake. So one side's Arkansas, one side's Mississippi. And you can go out into the Mississippi River and go to different sandbars and things out on the river. I always liked working over there just because I could go out into the river and uh, kind of get by myself relax a little while and come back in the lake and do some more business. But, yeah, we, we uh, the big party, party weekend, I forget what it was, one of the holidays, and we were over there working, and, uh, you know, there's a lot of people that like to go out and ski and tube and just ride around and have a good time, and, they stay sober, and they have kids with them, uh, and they're out there just trying to have a good time, and they expect that water to be safe for them to enjoy. Well, then you got another segment of the population that likes to go out there and party. There's nothing wrong with partying, but just like driving drunk on the highway, you cause a lot of problems for more than just the driver of that vehicle, the same way with the boat, and we were right, BUIs boating under the influence. So we were over there checking safety stuff and 
and uh, trying to make sure everybody was doing right on the lake. Well, you kind of you kind of know uh, what you need to do and how you need to work different lakes. And so we went over there late in the, late in the day after lunch and checked a lot of people, and <clears throat> it got to be about dark. And I said, hey, fellas, let's go over here and just hang out for a little while in the shadows. Let's wait for a little bit of this party crowd to come in. Well, with cell phones, but everybody's texting, hey, game board's up here or whatever. Well, most people would find a designated driver to drive their boat back, which is an excellent, excellent idea. I'd rather you find somebody who's not drunk to drive your boat back than catch you drunk driving your boat. And maybe I don't catch you drunk driving your boat and you end up hurting or killing somebody. So that's great. If somebody wants to call and tell the game warden sitting up there waiting and that keeps somebody from dying, it doesn't make me mad at all. But we were sitting in the shadows one evening and <laughs> got dark and the lights came on on the, the, the city front. You know how the, the side of the levee is got bricks on it or whatever it is over there uh, on the right. city front at Lake Ferguson. Everybody parks on the side of the, the levees, kind of a big slanted parking lot. and it's a, You can launch your boat right there. And so we were hanging out right there and it got dark. The street lights came on and uh, finally we we can hear this boat coming down the lake, but we can't see it. They didn't have any running lights on. There's a red and green light on the front, white light on the back. We can hear it coming down the lake. I said, where is he? There's three of us in a boat, and none of us can see this other boat coming down the lake. And finally, he went in front of the reflection of the streetlights on the bank. He went in front of that, and I said, there he is right there. I can see his silhouette. So we pull out, turn on our lights, turn on our blue lights, get behind this guy. And he never slows down. He just keeps going down the lane. Blue lights flashing. <laughs> I think he even had a siren on that boat, you know, and hit the siren a couple of times. Got a big LED light bar in the front of my boat, and he knows we're back there. He's keeping on going down the lane. And uh, finally, he goes probably three-quarters of a mile, and he stops the boat was three subjects in the boat, all all guys, and uh, I don't know what they had been doing out on that island, but I know it was alcohol involved. I don't know if there was anything else involved, but I know for a fact it was alcohol, because there was beer cans all in the boat. They were drinking when we stopped them. We're just going to do a safety check, and I mean, they're getting the tickets for coming down the lake with no lights. That's, that's a given. That's going to happen. The guy in the front of the boat, we we pull up beside him, and there's three of us in our boat, so two guys are holding on to their boat to keep us from drifting apart. And I think maybe I had the driver's ID and was going <clears> to <throat> write him a ticket for no running lights or something like that. Well, one of the guys in the front of the boat, he is just cussing up a storm, and he's cussing the game warden that's in the front of my boat. Oh, Hugh Johnson one of my best friends, old, old Marine, and uh, he taught school in Washington County, then he became a game warden, he, he taught shop, he had a well real well, and I always liked working with Hugh, and uh, he's cussing worst thing you, you up can, on Worst thing you do is cuss uh, game warden or highway patrolman, because you're not getting out of a ticket if you cuss them, right? It certainly does not help. But he's cussing, he's cussing Hugh up one side down the other. And I'm trying to focus on writing this ticket. And I can hear Hugh telling him, I'm not going to call the guy's name, but yeah, I can hear him telling, telling him, hey, man, you need to stop that cussing. And he's just MF or this, GD, you know, blank and blank. And uh, Hugh said, hey, you need to stop that cussing. So the guys, wanted to go on to their camp, and I said, no, y'all can't do that. You can idle right beside us with our lights on right over here to the city front. Well, they tell us, well, the boat won't crank. I said, man, you just cut it off. You're telling me it won't crank now? No, we can't get the boat to crank. 
So we were going to hang on to them and, and pull them, you know, over there and then get somebody to come bring their truck and they could load the boat up right there and somebody could drive them off. That was the safest thing to do. Well, this guy in the front of the boat steadily just yank, 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 yank. He's cussing. And finally, I looked up and I said, I called his name and I said, if you don't stop cussing, you're going to go to jail. Got disorderly conduct and, and all those kind of laws, you know. <laughs> and he stood up on the front of the boat and just stuck his hands out and he said, Well, you can take me to jail, M. After. And I said, Boy, I have never been so ready to take somebody to jail as that day. And uh, we had kind of drifted off from him because I was writing a ticket. And I said, Take this boat over there right now. So they cranked up the boat, our boat, we went over to him and idled up to him, and uh, the guy on the front of the boat grabbed their boat and held it. And I walked over into the boat, and I'm telling him to put his hands behind his back. Well, of course, he's not doing what I'm asking him to do because he's been cussing us the whole time. And uh, I go to turn him around, put his put his arm behind his back, and the boat's rocking. You know how boats are in the lake. And uh, the boats are rocking back and forth. Well, he turns and pushes me. And I kind of fall back. Well, one of the guys in our boat, and I laughed about him later, I said, nobody wanted me in their boat. I said, they pushed me out of theirs. So y'all pushed me back into their boat. And he said, no, I didn't. And uh, I said, but I went back into their boat. And when I did, I tackled the guy, put both my arms around him, and just tackled him. We fell across the little windshield on the console, and I could hear it break when we did. <clears throat> and our department required us to wear those automatic inflatable uh, PFDs, uh, you know, ones that when you hit the water, you go under, they inflate. Right. And when I, gra when I grabbed that guy, we fell across the, the console and unintentionally kind of rolled off that console and right off the side of the boat. I looked down, I could see the water coming. So we hit the water. We both popped up. My life jacket went off. And uh, they picked on me. They said it was that scene like Chris Farley was in the airplane and his, you know, his life jacket went off and he was trying to pop it, you know. And uh, so I popped up and all I could hear, I, I couldn't hear him. I was kind of like, you know, when you get to fight and you just lose focus on whatever's going on around you. And I could see him. He was, he was right there beside me. He took his hands, he put them on top of my head, and he pushed me down. I just held my, held my breath. Because I was fat and I had a life jacket on, too. I wasn't worried about it. I was like a brim bobber. I was coming back to the top. Wasn't any problem. Funny I mean, now. Be it's funny now, but I wasn't scared because uh, I say I wasn't scared. I, wasn't, I didn't think I was fixing to drown at that time, at that exact moment. And I popped up, and he's still right there beside me. So I ran back, and I hit him, and I missed his nose, and I hit him right in the hard part of his forehead. And it hurt my hand when I hit him. But he started hollering, and I saw him coming back to me. And I, I thought to myself, I thought, either he or I are fixing to die right here in this water. I said, He's going to try to push me back under again. If he gets on my head, I'm not going to be able to get out from under him. Or either I'm going to pull my pistol and kill him right here in the water. And so instead of taking one of those two outcomes, I just grabbed the side of the boat and started pulling myself away from it to create some distance. <laughs> so I got around to the back of the boat, and one of the guys helped me up in there. So he, I guess he regained a little bit of his senses, and he... He swam around the other side of the boat, still cussing the whole time, blankety, blankety, blank. He got in their boat. So we just grabbed the side of their boat and cranked ours up. And, and, and the boat that they said wouldn't crank when we asked them to go to the bank, the guy was trying to crank it while we were in the water. And one of the other guys in the boat, before we fell out, my partner said he reached over there and grabbed Joe Gunn when y'all were wrestling with the other guy, and I said, I felt somebody grabbing my gun, but we had retention holster, 
it's hard to get them out of there unless you know what you're doing. Thank goodness we had retention holsters. It's one of the safety things our department gave us. And uh, he said, I knocked his hand off the gun. So these guys had no good intentions uh, about the whole deal. And we got them to the bank, called the sheriff's department. They picked them up, took them to jail. We got our our boat loaded up, went to the jail. And uh, two of the guys got charged with disorderly conduct. And one of them, no navigation lights because he was driving the boat, whatever little charges we had, and so I charged this other fellow. Oh, is it aggravated assault? Oh, it's not attempted murder, but it's aggravated assault on a, on a law enforcement officer. And then he wanted to go to the hospital. He had a big goose egg up on his forehead. I was kind of proud of him. I knew my hand was hurting, but I couldn't figure out why. So we both went to the hospital, and I had broken that bone right below your pinky finger below that knuckle, that bone that comes back down to your wrist. I broke that bone when I hit him. And uh, they examined him. Yeah, he just had a little goose egg on his head. And uh, so they put one of those little metal splints on my head. And I lost my glasses. I knocked the lens out of my sunglasses that were hanging around my neck. My regular glasses were down the bottom of Lake Ferguson. So I got home and... uh, It was a few weeks later, I went before the grand jury in Washington County and presented my case, and they uh, they deliberated probably five minutes, and they indicted him on uh, assault on a law enforcement officer, which is a felony. So uh, I think at that point, they picked the guy up, put him in jail, and he, he ended up bonding out. But before court, our court date ever came around, he uh, called me. I, I heard a rumor that something happened to him, and, and uh, the uh, the lawyers called me like that Monday morning and said, "Man, I, I got some news for you." And I said, "What?" And they said, "Well, oh, so and so, he's uh, he's not here anymore." And I said, "Well, I kind of heard that, and I think he." Had been at a, a party and jumped on the four-wheeler and uh, ran through town on the four-wheeler and ended up flipping it, hit his head on the road, and it killed him right there. And uh, so I, I don't want to drag the guy through the mud because he paid the ultimate price, but <clears throat> it is a dangerous job. And I've had people ask me before, usually women, why do y'all have guns? Do you keep your guns loaded? You know, and all those kind of questions. Uh, you know, if you're wearing a badge, you're a law enforcement officer, and anybody who's living in this country over the last uh, 10 years will know that there has not been much respect for law enforcement officers, especially starting about 10 years back. You can decide whatever reason that is, but there's not been much respect for law enforcement officers, and uh, a lot of people are just anti-government. And, you know, every law enforcement officer out there is a uh, a face of the government. People people target them. Uh, but, but anyway, it is a dangerous job. And, and that day I had two other guys in the boat with me, which is not very common. I probably spent 90% of my time in the 14 years I worked for the Department of Wildlife by myself, as do most game wardens. But you're out there at night, and maybe maybe your partner, uh, his kid was doing something in school, and he had a program, so he can go, and you get a call, and you're out there by yourself. <clears throat> if you're in a real rural county, like Humphreys County, most of the Delta, they might not even have a deputy on duty after certain hours of the night, or they may only have one or two. Well, if it's a Friday night, $100 says those deputies are tied up, but something else is going on. And uh, when you call 20 miles out in the boondocks wanting assistance, if they know where you are and how to get to you, it's going to be 30 minutes. So there's there's not a lot of options in terms of backup when you're a uh, conservation officer. And that, I think that's true for all parts of the country and, and even Canada.
Your your partner at the time, that new game warden out of uh, Belzone, what was his name? You talking about Burl? Burl. Was Burl with you on yeah. that when that happened? Yeah, I remember it, yeah. freaked, it freaked Burl out, didn't it? <laughs> I guess so. Burl told me that the guy said, I'm going to drown your butt, but he didn't say butt. But he heard the guy say that right before he pushed me underwater. And, uh, of course, I didn't hear any of that. I couldn't, I couldn't testify to that in court because I didn't hear it. Uh, if he said it, he said it right there beside me, but it never went in my ear. <clears throat> and uh, it was probably a year later, and I was on Lake Washington. And I pulled up to a boat, and one of those three guys, one of, one of the guys that was in that boat that night was fishing. And uh, I said, hey, man. I checked his license, and he was just as nice as he could be. And uh, I said, man, I said, what about old so-and-so, man? I said, that's that's a bad deal, what happened to him. And he said, yeah, man. And, and, uh, we we just talked, and he said, man, we we had too much to drink that day. And he said, that's what it boiled down to. I mean, so he he, he acknowledged the fact that, you know, I mean, he was nice this day, and the, the day we checked him, he was they were just totally different. So, uh, I guess it was kind of good for me to talk to that other guy, and he kind of acknowledged that they were right. You for know. you. Yeah, but you know, the story that got out uh, is always a story. Sure. I'm sure and, it got uh, twisted uh, ninety-two different ways. Oh yeah, yeah. I was checking somebody on Wolf Lake. And, Stopped the boat and they said, "What happened to your hand?" And I said, "Well, I, I broke it, you know, on arrest." Well, that ain't what we heard happen. And I said, "I don't know what y'all heard happen, but uh, it's always some kind of story." And uh, that I had started the fight with this guy, you know, provoked him, and he was uh, just minding his own business, you know. And I picked a fight with him, but you can't control what people say, so. And speaking of speaking of backup, you brought up an interesting. We'll 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 close it with this one. Most interesting backup uh, that you ever got called on. Hey, any uh, law officers nearby, such and such? Can you come help with this? What what was the when when you were a game warden? What was the most interesting backup call that you had to go to? I can't think right off the top of my head. Uh, I know uh, one time when I was in Quinton County, a guy had, uh, I don't remember this right, a guy had stolen a car and they were chasing him or something. And he ended up ditching the car and jumping in the, in the uh, Coldwater River. I guess he floated, floated down towards town and, um, we got called on that one. We never found the guy, but it, we're always getting called on, on different things like that. Or you'd see another officer pulled over, a highway patrolman, a deputy pulled over on the side of the road, and we'd stop, turn my light, blue lights on, try not to distract them, but uh, you know, get out, kind of walk up behind the car. They were checking just to let that guy know that he had another set of eyes there, and they were good about doing that with us. They'd pull up and stop. Hey man, you okay? Or are they standing there till we got through with the stop? And just a kind of a brotherhood that once you're in law enforcement, it doesn't matter what color your uniform is. If you got mud grips on your truck or you're driving a car, uh, it's just a brotherhood. Everybody kind of watches out for everybody. You got to. You got to these days. Well, look, we've got, we've got, I've got two or three more topics that we're going to cover. But I want you to think about one more. I'm adding to it. I'm adding one more because you, you got me to thinking as you talked about the guy that jumped in the cold, river, cold water river and you couldn't find him. Sneakiest uh, trespasser that you never did, that you never could catch, or the one that you finally did catch. Talk about that one on the next show. You got to say, I don't want to know any names, but the, you know, the, the hardest. I guess it'd be called a job in that profession. 
the hardest job that you ever worked? I got some guys right now that I would take my old job back if I could just catch them. That would that would be worth getting the job back. <laughs> Woo! All right, well, Rob, you be careful the rest of the way home. What day are you going back? I don't know. Um, got some stuff to do at home, and and, and uh, I think I may have a fishing trip Friday and Saturday back to Louisiana if uh, if the weather cooperates. So I may not be in the Delta for very long this time. Well, I may catch you on the way back to Louisiana. Just recorded a little bit out. It'll pass pass your time quicker as you're going back down there. But yeah, I enjoyed it, man. Look, I think that you could. I'm glad we spent a little. I've had people worry me to not worry me, but wanting me to talk about the South Delta, and I don't think that there's there's nobody that I can think of that spent more time in that part of the world than you. And I think you gave a great perspective of what's going on down there right now. Yeah, those guys are hurting the South Delta right now and uh I mean you live in a floodplain, you get used to water, but this is just really complicated. It has a lot to do with other states and Corps of Engineer and Corps of Engineers and, and it's it's really complicated. And you know, my buddy Mark Wright down on the Mississippi coast, Legends of the Lower March fishing charters, he was on Duck South from way back when. Mark's a, a charter captain down there. I did a snapper trip with him about three or four weeks ago, and all that all that river water coming through the Bonnie Carey spillway to keep it keep the water down, uh, keep the levee safe around New Orleans. All that water's coming through Lake Pontchartrain, Lake Bourne, going right out to the Mississippi Sound, and their their salinity in the Mississippi Sound is normally eighteen to twenty parts per thousand. I think is what Mark told me. They got places over there where it's zero to two parts per thousand salinity. It's almost I mean, all fresh water. Almost all yeah. fresh. It's killing oysters. They got guys setting crab traps and they pull the crab traps up. All the crabs are dead. Killing porpoises and sea turtles. That you know when they stay in fresh water too long, they can start getting sores on the skin and then infection infection sets in. And so this river. Is, is a problem for probably two-thirds of the country this year. It's, it's really been a problem. Well, I'll catch you on the way back down. Just text me. and We'll record. But thank you again, man. I really, really enjoyed this. Thank you, Rocky. We want to thank all of you that listened to this edition of the End of the Line podcast powered by DuckSouth.com. <laughs>